All right, y'all, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to begin reading in verse uh, number 41. Verse number 41 today. Let me see here. Thank you for that, y'all. I was blessed by that music. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Okay. Whoa, okay. This is the one that goes down. This one that falls down. All right, I'm just going to hold this. I'll move this back. All right. All right, Matthew 22 today and verse 41. Let's ask the Lord for some help. Lord God, we thank you so much for bringing us together. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, enlighten our hearts and minds with the truth. The truth as you see it, Lord, the truth as you've spoken it, as you've commanded your men to write it. God, help us with this truth, God. Help us. May the Holy Spirit guide us in wisdom here today. And Lord, maybe this worship in preaching, this worship in reading, this worship in, uh, in studying the, the scriptures, Lord, be pleasing to you, God. We pray that it's a fragrant offering to you, Lord of ours. God, may you accept this spiritual sacrifice, Lord, this laying aside of ourselves, that we may take up everything that you are. Lord God, help me, Lord. Help me to speak with the power of God and the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Okay, verse 41. Now, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Interesting question, isn't it? Jesus asked them a question, verse 42, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, how is, it then, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him a question anymore. Or dare to ask him any more questions. Now, this is a remarkable, remarkable place in the scripture that we find ourselves in, in uh, Matthew 22. It's a, it's, it's a remarkable teaching from God, and we'll see here, hopefully, whose son he is. And I think we know, probably, here sitting in this room, whose son the Christ is. Um, and, and so we'll unpack that here. The Bible is clear about whose son he is. Now, the scriptures in the Old Testament, this is what Jesus is asking them about in reference to a certain verse. Now, whose son is the Christ then? And he's asking them, he's poking holes in their theology. He's, ask, he's asking them about their knowledge of the truth. And he's asking them a far more important question about God himself. And we'll see that here. So question upon question upon question from the Jewish religious elite, and now a question from Jesus himself to the very people accusing him through questioning. You see this? The very same people who accuse him through questioning, now he's got a question for them. Now they accuse him through their questioning of him. It's both direct and it's passive at the same time. It's directly aggressive and it's also passively aggressive. You all know what passive aggressive is, right? It's when you say something, you don't use a person's name, but you say, gosh, I wish that so-and-so would really stop doing this, and you're talking right to the person, you know, or you say, I wish people would, I'm sorry, you say, like, I wish people would stop doing this, and you're talking right to the person, yet you don't address them directly, so you're just being aggressive towards them passively, hoping that they'll pick up on the context clues of what you're saying, right? Passively aggressive. When you say something that somebody else can hear, knowing that you're talking about them, but because you, you don't have the courage, maybe, to say something directly to them. This is passively aggressive. This is not the way of God. This is actually the way of sin. They are both actively aggressive and, uh, and passively aggressive. And most often, they are passively aggressive towards him. And the reason for this is because they fear the people, don't they? 
They fear the crowds. We hear that in other verses, that they, they didn't dare, dare do anything to him. They didn't dare apprehend him because of fear of the crowd. We hear uh, oftentimes in the New Testament, several times in fact, that they are in fear of what the people think, the fear of what the people are going to say, what the people are going to do. Because at the bottom of it all, they really want control. They want control over the people. They want control over the theology of the day. They want control over belief and practice in God's kingdom. They want control over it all because they believe that they're right about everything. Now, they have established over and over again their inability to control crowds, though. And this is why they fear them, because they know they can't really control them. And I think we we have a a kind of a, a little... Uh, handle on that situation or maybe an understanding of that kind of situation here in the United States. Government wants to control the things that people do, how we do them, so that we can stop the spread of the coronavirus, right? Now, does government really have control over people? They try to exercise their uh, uh, governmental authority, uh, both uh, or at the federal level, at the state level, and at the local level, by enforcing these restrictions placed on people, and they even place, they, they, they give people fines in certain places, right? $1,000, $500, different types of fines, different costs for different people if they aren't wearing masks and things like this in public. Well, this is government's attempt to control what you do, all right? Now, whether it's right or it's wrong, we all experience a type of uh, uh, attempted control over our private lives. And, and this, this is what people do. They, they want control. They want to be able to control everything. But at the bottom of it all, and at the end of the day, do they really have control over anyone? No, they don't, because we all make our own de- decisions individually, don't we? And this is what the Pharisees were met with. Their desire for control, yet not only knowing their desire for control, but their, also their, uh, their knowledge of the fact that they really didn't have it. They desired it, but didn't really have it, and this frustrated them. It's frustrated them with the people, and it also frustrated them with Jesus. Why? Be- or how do we know that? Because they continue to accuse him through questioning. They continue their inquisition of Jesus at every step, every step of the way. They're questioning, questioning, questioning. Well, what do you say about this? Well, what do you think about this? Well, what happens if this happens? Well, then, if in the resurrection of the dead, if there's really a resurrection, then whose wife is she among the seven whom she married? This is their attempt at control. This is their attempt and also their realization that they didn't have control over Jesus. It frustrated them to no end. But their livelihood's at stake. These Pharisees, their very way of life, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they, they, their very way of life, it's at stake. It's all at stake, and it's in the hands of this man that they don't understand, this man they consider a heretic, this man they consider an enemy of the temple of God, and a man they consider an enemy of the people and an enemy of God himself, because they didn't know that this man that they questioned, this man is God himself. This man is the one whom they seek. This man is the one that they've been waiting for, but they're unwilling to see it. Their eyes have been blinded from knowing the truth. They do not know that this man is God. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. God incarnate. The very one by whom the world and the universe was created. This is Jesus Christ. And John 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, right? And that everything that was made was made through that word. And that that word was Christ and he is the light of all mankind. And that there was life in him. He's the one who came to bring the gospel of grace to the earth. And to bring the lost sheep of the house of Israel back to God as they'd strayed away. He wanted to bring them into a life-giving relationship with God. And then he will call even those, even those who are not of the house of Israel... To follow him. This is miraculous in in and of itself. That this grace that God has is offered even to people outside of that house of Israel. This is a miracle of which we are a direct result. But they don't understand him. Why don't they understand him? They don't understand him because they don't know God. This is the main... This is the main... uh, 
requirement for knowing what God says and what God means is knowing God Himself first. We, if we don't know who God is, dude, we don't know God, we don't have a relationship with Him, then we won't we clearly won't understand what He says. The Bible tells us that the Word of God is folly to the world. It's foolishness to them. So you see, they're, um, the Pharisees, their actions are divorced from their words because they don't know God. Jesus tells us of this very thing as he pronounces the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees in the very next chapter that we'll be going through in Matthew 23. Their teaching, their words, and their lives are quite different. So their teaching and their words, and then their lives, are two different things. This is what Jesus Christ calls uh, attention to in their life, or in, in that life as he's living it then, and then to us now. And to all the people in between and all the people thereafter, we go on from here. Their teaching, their words, the Pharisees, and their lives are quite different. And Jesus basically tells the people in the following chapter, in chapter 23, that as the scribes and Pharisees teach the law of Moses, do what they say, but not what they do. He's saying their words as they preach the law of Moses are the right ones, but they're not even following that. Don't follow after their lives. So Jesus takes them all together as they're gathered here. They're gathered, this group, they're gathered. Jesus takes them and issues this question to them as they are gathered and congregated, the Pharisees. And he asks all of them at once this question. I don't know how many of them were gathered there, but there were a group of them, no doubt. And they were... um, collected there because of their inquisition of him. They were questioning him, questioning him. He took the opportunity. He seized it, and he questioned them in return. And uh, the people needed to see, which is why Jesus did it, the people needed to see that the whole Pharisaical order, the whole Pharisaical system was corrupt. It had been corrupted by men. It had been corrupted by selfish, evil men with wicked desires in a heart set after their own selves and their own pride and selfish ambition. The whole pharisaical system, the whole pharisaical order was corrupted and Jesus wanted the people to see it. Because he needed them to know, listen, they're saying the right things when they're preaching the law of Moses, when they're telling you to adhere to the commands of God, but they're not doing that with their lives, so don't follow after their lives. Listen to what they say, don't follow what they do. But isn't it a whole lot better to be able to listen to what somebody says and to follow after what they do? To see them live out the very thing that they preach? Isn't that better? Isn't that what we're called to do in Christ's church? It's not only to speak the truth, but to live the truth. And this is a message to us. Let's not be that hypocritical mass of people who say one thing and do a completely different thing. Let's be the same person from room to room, from place to place throughout our entire lives. Let's be who Christ calls us to be. So Jesus, calling attention to the corruption of the entire Pharisaical system, he's saying basically if you follow one, then you follow all to your own peril. He says as much in the next chapter as well. I want to call your attention to Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 15 here. Verse 15, actually all these verses, 13, 14, 15, they're incredible. And and I want you to listen real carefully because there is a specific meaning here as Jesus tells it. Now there's a world out there that wants to preach to you that Jesus is all about candy canes and roses and frolicking in meadows of, uh, you know, daffodils and daisies. That he's all about making, you know, spring angels in the wildflowers and snow angels in, 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 in the wintertime. That, you know, it's, it's, it's all peace. It's, it's, all, it's all just everything. Jesus is just this soft, soft, soft person. And we find when we read the Bible, don't we, church, that Jesus is quite different than the world tells us he is. Jesus is actually quite different than a lot of churches uh, will tell you that he is. A lot of churches will focus on certain parts of the scripture What we can do because we go through the Bible verse by verse is we can't hide from any of the verses. We can't hide away from and behind any of these things. We actually take refuge in them because they are the whole truth of God, as the Bible calls it, the whole counsel of God. Amen? Let's listen to what he says here. 
in verse 13, Matthew 23 and uh, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. I want you to hear something, church. When there is a false teaching, a false doctrine, a false prophecy, a false prophet, a false pastor, a false church, when you're there and you're intertwined and interwoven into that community of faith and believe in the God that they preach, I want you to know that Jesus is telling you here that you actually don't believe in God at all. That is a wrong God, therefore a God that has no power to save. Again, verse 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now this is Jesus, our loving Savior, showing us the truth about the Pharisaical system and the Pharisaical order about the time, at the time. Is, is, is there anything good that Jesus sees in it? No. Now some would come out of that Pharisaical order and be saved. Amen? Thanks be to God that they would. And that is a miracle of heaven that they would. It doesn't matter how hard one works if that work is done in vain. He tells them that they travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a single convert. And when he becomes a convert or proselyte, that they make him twice as much a child of hell as themselves. Why? Because they're leading him to the wrong master. We need to be led to the right master, church. Amen? Who is the right master? Jesus Christ himself. He's the only master. He's the only one who will save He's the only one that's coming back for you. People can preach far and wide about someone else or some other life or some other blessing that they get when they go into the afterlife after they pass on from this life. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus is the only one coming back. He's the only one coming back for you. And isn't that a miracle of God himself that he comes back? That he would come back. That he would come back to take those who remain to be with him. Mm. You could travel across the globe, according to this, on mission trips. But if the mission is the wrong mission, even if you make converts, those converts, if the mission and message are wrong, those converts are not God's converts. They are your converts converted to a false Christianity, a false Christ, and ultimately lost all the more. I want you to see that. The message is wrong, then it's all wrong. The message is the most important thing that we have in the church. Because the message is the gospel. It is the good news about Jesus Christ that came to save us, though we were still sinners. We stood condemned in our trespasses, and Jesus came at that time. Not, be, not while we got it all gussied up and ready to go, and we prettied ourselves up and got ourselves ready for him. We were doing good things in our lives. That's not what the Bible says. God, the Bible says that God came while we were still sinners, and he died for the ungodly. Oh, what a miracle. Oh, what a miracle. We must test everything that we hear in the church. Everything that we hear, we have to test it against the Scriptures. Should we test it against society? Should we test it against culture? Should we test it against the television shows? Should we test it against the world's music? Should we test it against other churches? No, what we do is we test what we hear against the Scriptures themselves. Because that's where the truth is. That's where the real truth is. We have to say, is it in the Word? Is it in the Word like this, like it's being presented? Or is this a perversion of the Word? We know that the enemy, as he tempted Christ in Luke chapter 4, in the wilderness, he spouted verses, right, to Jesus Christ in order to tempt Him. He even thwarted God's Word in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when he said, did God really say? He's messing with the Word of God. The enemy is. So when we hear words that seem like they're scriptural, they come from God, we need to know, so did God really say them like that? Or did God say it another way? Is that really the meaning of that verse? 
Or did God mean something else by it? What are you trying to convince me of here? This is what we need to know. Does it coincide with the rest of the Bible? This is what we need to know as well. Not only is a verse in context in its original, uh, in its original chapter, but then it, does, it, does it follow along with and flow along with the meaning of the entire Scripture and the doctrine of grace? Does it marry well with the doctrine of grace and the gospel of grace? We have to test all we hear because there are those out in the world that would try and sway you to a different gospel, one of a false Christ, and this is not what we want. We don't want that gospel because it has no power to save. And what do we need most of all in this world, church? We need salvation. We need to be saved. We need to be changed by the power of God. And in order to be changed by the power of God, we have to speak in the power of God and believe in the power of God. In order to do that, we have to believe in a real Christ. But Jesus has them together, congregated while he questions them, and, and, then, and they may have an advantage on paper. Um, and what that means is, if you ever, um, you know, like before your, your, your team uh, season starts, you know, you follow sports, baseball, basketball, football, Seems like you got a real beefed up team. You know, your team's going to do good. I mean, this happens to us every year as Cowboys fans. You know, nowadays, uh, we, oh man, it looks good on paper. We look good on paper. I remember the Philadelphia Eagles years ago when they got, they had like Michael Vick and all them. They were calling themselves the dream team. And then they didn't even make the playoffs that year, I don't think. On paper, they seemed really good. They seemed to have an advantage over other teams. Because they have all this talent. But then in reality, when push comes to shove, nuts and bolts have to be put together. They just don't fit together. Well, the Pharisees congregated together. They seem to have an advantage over Jesus on paper anyway. There's a bunch of them. As he asks them a question, they get to confer with one another. As they ask Jesus questions, is Jesus conferring with his disciples? Is Jesus saying, hey, listen, y'all, what do you think? I mean, they're trying to get me here. What do y'all think? Let me hear what y'all think, guys. Jesus never takes instruction from the disciples. Never. Because he's God. He's the one who instructs. He's God. God is the only one who doesn't take instruction from people. All the rest of us, we all take instruction. Amen? And, we're, and we do well to take instruction. But Jesus doesn't take that. He doesn't need it. He knows all. He created it all. He knows what the truth is. He wrote it. He thinks it. He lives it. He speaks it. So on paper, you know, they seem to have an advantage. Several against one. Yet they know not of the one whom they gather against. They know not of the one whom they gather against. No, the preeminent one will not fall. He will not fail. He wouldn't fall or fail in that moment. And he will never fall or fail in any moment. Amen? This is our Jesus. He remains victorious forever and ever. Amen. And now again from Matthew 22 and verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together... Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. What do you think, he asks them. What do you think, he asks them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? I think it's very interesting that he didn't ask them, What do you know about the Christ? He asked them what they thought. Because he knew exactly what was going to come out. Just thoughts. Not truth. Just what they thought, their opinion. Whose son? Would they, would, they say, would they say Joseph, the Pharisees? Would they say Joseph's son? Of course not. Because then they would have to concede that the guy that they're talking to that's questioning them, that he's the Christ. They weren't going to do that. They didn't believe he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. They didn't believe that. So of course they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't mention his father in the flesh. The husband of Mary, his mother in the flesh. And we know that this... Uh, uh, and we know that this would be wrong, of course, anyway, because he, he wasn't born of traditional means. He was born by the miracle of the virgin birth. The miracle of the virgin birth, placed into the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit himself. Placed in there. 
So who then? Whose son is the Christ? And moreover, what he's asking them is, who is the Christ? Who is he? What do they understand the Christ to be? In order for them to get this question right, they'd have to know whose son the Christ is. And now we know that he is God's son, don't we? We know that he is the son of the Father, of our Father in heaven. That's, that's, who he, that's what they should say. The Christ is the son of the living God. He is the... But they don't say it. And now we, we know that he is he's the son. We know that he's the son of the most high God. But do they know this? And this is the main point a main point of theology, they must know of whom they speak as they speak of a Christ who would come to save them from their oppressors and usher in the kingdom of God on the earth. They must know of whom they speak, but we see here they do not know. They don't know Him. They don't know who God is. They don't know who the Christ is, the Messiah, the Savior they're waiting for. Jesus asks them a spiritual question as they always have their physical minds at work answering them. This spiritual question Jesus asks, they're looking for answers in their flesh. You cannot, con- you cannot comprehend spiritual truths with physical realities all the time. Our finite minds cannot comprehend an infinite God. Whose son is the Christ? Well, with several of the Pharisees gathered together, and a lawyer, and lawyers among them, because we read that previous section from last week, they couldn't answer him with the right answer. Even with an attorney present. He takes them all down at once with one question. Also within this question is, is this. Who is God? Not just the Christ whose son is he, because that's there. Jesus asks that. At the heart of the question that Jesus asks is, who is God? Who is the Christ and who is God? Because we know that Christ is God. Amen? He is God. So he's asking them, do you know who God is? They need to know the truth about what they think. They need to know that they believe wrong. We know who they held to high esteem, don't we? They, we Moses and David. We hear them talk over and over about the law of Moses, the law of Moses, the law of Moses. Your disciples don't keep, in, or, or, or the, the traditions of the elders, with their elders, their elders, or who else do they hold in high esteem? David, David, son of David, the King David, old great David. They hold them in high esteem. They draw on their law, on the law of Moses for their control over the people, and they preach his commands, yet they neglect to follow them. They call for the son of David to come and deliver them, yet they call on the wrong thing as they are calling for a son according to the flesh. And I want us to see that here too today. That spiritual realities and physical realities do not always line up. What we can see is not always the truth about what's real. What we can see physically with our eyes is not always the truth about what's real spiritually in the kingdom of God. They're calling for a son according to the flesh. They try and answer a spiritual question with a physical answer, an answer tied to the world. Is it true, though? Is it true that he's the son of David, that Christ is a son son of David? Yes, absolutely. According to the flesh, if we talk bloodline and the family Jesus was born into, yes, we can say for certain that he was in the line of David as his mother Mary was of that bloodline. You can say that. Yet what are the spiritual reality, though? The spiritual reality, Mary's womb was not made ready and was not fruitful as a result of an act done in the flesh. It was was, was fruitful as an act done out of the will of God miraculously by the Holy Spirit so that the one, the Christ who would come into the world would not be born of the acts done in the flesh but by the purpose of God Himself. He was born differently. Everything had to be different about Him. He's different 
They were busy waiting for a worldly, earthly king, a warrior king who would come to deliver them from the hands of their oppressors. Yet God came to deliver them from the penalty of their own sin and walked among them, yet they could not see him. They did not not recognize him as God because they did not know God. And we see here Jesus calling out to them and to their hearts, letting them know, you don't know me. You don't know God. If only they would believe. But it would take the sight of God for people to believe. It would take the intimate and relational teaching of Jesus Christ for even the closest to him to believe. These disciples, more than this, it would take the mir- it would take miracle after miracle and torture upon torture to the point of death on a cross and then his miraculous resurrection from the dead for them to believe. It took all of that for them to believe. Blessed is he who sees or who believes without seeing, yet there were very few that believed without seeing. Actually, we find that there were a great many people who believed after they saw. Is that right? After the resurrection. And all of this with the blessing of God to give them eyes to see and hearts to believe that this was the truth. They had to be given those eyes and hearts by God in order to believe. The disciples needed belief in their hearts. They needed that in order for them to know that what their eyes were seeing, that they were not being deceived as they look on his dead body. As he looked upon his dead body, that they needed a heart to believe in order to know that they were not being deceived as they looked upon his dead body and then on his risen one. They needed belief in their heart in order to believe what they saw with their eyes. And then at least some needed their eyes to convince them in their hearts that this was the truth as we read about Philip as well. But, what, but why would the Pharisees say the son of David? Let's go to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 in verse 35. Now this actually is in the Psalms. Huh. My Thursday, in our Thursday video, I kept on saying Psalm, Psalm, and it was Isaiah that I was teaching out of. So, yeah. Psalm 89. And... Uh, 35, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And then let's look at Isaiah 9 and 7. Of the increase of his government, this is Isaiah 9 and 7, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we hear in here that there is going to be a son of David who's going to come to save, who's going to be their rescuer, the promise of God in heaven, the promise for his people on earth. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they answered him according to what they, had, uh, what they had been taught and what had been handed down. But they still didn't understand the spiritual application of the kingdom of David and how this would be accomplished on earth. They were still tied to the world and only what they could see with their eyes because they didn't have hearts to believe. So they didn't have the spiritual realities being uncovered before their eyes in their minds and hearts by God because they did not believe God. Church, if you are only tied to this world and what you can see, then you will undoubtedly miss out on the spiritual truths of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven. Don't just depend on what you can see with your eyes. Because over and over and over again, I know that it's true about my own life and the lives of the people around me, the people I talk to most, 
that God does things that we cannot possibly explain with human words or wisdom. God blesses us in ways that we cannot comprehend. He blesses us in ways that we cannot believe at times. I can't believe God did this. I can't believe He did it. Why? The physical reality, what I can see is that men are bad, that I'm bad, that women are bad, that children are bad, but God saves us anyway. The physical reality, what I can see with my mind, what I can think with my mind, what I can see with my eyes, I know that we're bad and we, we, we need help, all, every single one of us. The miracle is that God gives that help, and He gives that help through the power of the Holy Spirit as we believe in Jesus Christ. The spiritual reality is that God saves those who hate Him and live in rebellion against Him. For Some, for a majority of their life, look at the, the man who was on the cross next to Christ. His whole life lived in oblivion. Finds Himself on a cross, dying next to the Savior. And He pleads to Him, Remember me! Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The miracle of God is that physically we see a man dying on a cross next to another man dying on a cross next to another man dying on a cross. Supposedly, all of them deserved it. In a physical world with physical realities, all of them were guilty of a crime. Jesus, the only one accused and pronounced guilty, though he was innocent. Yet the guilty one right next to him ends up with him in his kingdom. Jesus says, I say to you, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. We can't see that physically as the man draws his last breath and as his eyes close, as his body withers, as he dies next to the other man, we can't see that with our eyes that they're in a new kingdom together. That they're in paradise together. We can't see it with our eyes. But the spiritual reality is that it's true. And we should believe it in our hearts and in our minds. Because physical realities don't always match up with spiritual realities. You see, if you're tied to the world... you'll think that every argument you ever have is a struggle against people. That you're just arguing and struggling with this person across from you. Or on the other side of the keyboard. A lot of people like to do a lot of, you know, la-di-da-da on social media. Get into chaotic arguments. Post after post after post. Argue, argue. I need to make my point. I need them to hear me. And know that I'm not afraid because I have courage to type it up from across the world and never see them face to face. If you're tied to the world, you'll think that you have a struggle against the person across from you. You'll believe that your battle is in the flesh. You'll think that the state, the world, and our country are in here in the United States of America is a war of ideologies in the flesh. If we're tied to the flesh, we'll think that certain that, 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 that we're just in a war of ideologies in the flesh that certain people push in order to incite violence and unrest. But if you are familiar with the truth of the kingdom, you will know this. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So if we're tied to the world, we'll believe that our battle is in the flesh and we struggle against flesh and blood. But if we're in the kingdom of heaven and we believe in spiritual things because God is spiritual, then we'll know that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That it's a battle being waged in the spirit. 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians, their lawyers, the Romans even, battled against the flesh with their traditions, their commands. The Pharisees, they didn't deal in the spiritual anymore. The Pharisees didn't. And more on this in a moment. Again, Matthew 22 and verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. So what did they think about the Christ? They thought he was a warrior who would come to save and deliver them from their oppressors. Whose son did they think he was? Well, the son of David. We read, now let's take a look at his response. In verse 43, he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit, listen to that, in the spirit, right? David in the flesh, y'all, or David in the spirit? Which one? All right, in the spirit. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. He got a little scared there. Now you heard me say that the Pharisees didn't deal in the spiritual anymore just a little bit ago. That spiritual leadership had passed away and only a remnant of God's people remained. His faithful people, only a remnant still existed on the earth who were faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Examples of this are right in the beginning of the New Testament. People like Elizabeth, like Zechariah, the priest, uh, Elizabeth's husband, John the Baptist's dad, John's mom and dad, John himself, Mary, Joseph... Now Mary and Joseph were those of the line of David from whom the Christ would come, though David would not be his father because his blood would be different than theirs. His blood would have the power to cleanse the elect of their sin for all time, though theirs would be corrupted and in need of cleansing by his in the flesh or in the spirit. How should we look at this? You see, they needed a spiritual blood transfusion that only the Christ could give. Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, John, all of us. We need a spiritual blood transfusion that only the Christ could give. We need His blood. Now, in His responsive question and teaching to them, Jesus declares and brings to their attention the Scripture where David calls the Christ Lord. And I want you to go to Psalm 110 with me. And now how can David call his own son Lord? This is what Jesus is arguing. If he's David's son, then how, 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 why does David call him Lord? And this argument's perfect, and it leaves them perplexed. Nothing to say and, 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 and to do except to leave and not question him anymore. You know, they're like, oh man, this ain't gonna work. Let's just go. This ain't gonna work. Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that would seem to imply or give us a picture, an illustration of the enemies of the Lord being under his feet. Is that right? In Genesis 3, in the curse, bless you, man. Genesis 3, he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed to the serpent. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Is that right? Then here, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool under the foot. So we hear as well, the Lord that David talks about is that very salvation. The very salvation prophesied, promised in the Garden of Eden. That same applies to this psalm, this revelation, this prophecy. It's messianic, a meaning that it, a meaning that it foretells of the Messiah. It, it, it foretells of the Christ. It tells us about what's going to happen before it happens. 
Now, how would David say this of his own offspring, a grandchild of many generations down the line? He would only say it if it was given to him by another authority, not his own mind, but the mind of the Spirit of God. In 2 Samuel 23, 1 and 2, it tells us, the Bible does, that David spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. That's David's words. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David is speaking in the Spirit, not in the flesh, amen, in the Spirit of spiritual things. 1 Corinthians 12.3 points out that those who say Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, can only say those words by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we just read that David speaks by the power of the Spirit, that his words are spoken by the mouth of David. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Ooh. So we know that David was in the Spirit as he says these words. Therefore, we also know that there is a spiritual truth that God teaches us in these verses if we're willing to see it with our spiritual eyes. Now, the spiritual truth here is this. The Christ is not a physical son of David, but a spiritual one. That David will also call Lord because the Lord, the Christ, is the preeminent one and He is God. That's the spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is that Christ isn't merely a descendant of David in the flesh. The Christ is God Himself. This is the spiritual truth. And this is the miracle of God. The response from the Pharisees, what is it? They left. They didn't answer. They didn't ask Him any more questions. They were perplexed. They stumbled over his words in the worst possible way. They stumbled to the point that they fell on their swords and committed spiritual suicide by denying the Christ to his face. Church, our spiritual lives cannot be lived out unless we first declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you declare that today in your heart? That Jesus Christ is Lord. We cannot get anywhere in this life or in eternity future that is of any good without Jesus Christ. We can do no eternal significant good without Jesus Christ. We cannot love with the love of God without Jesus Christ. We cannot do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it without salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. We must know that our battle here in this life, our battles, all of them are not fought against flesh and blood, so don't live like they are. Don't think that your problem was with the man or the woman or the child across from you. Know that there's a battle being waged in the Spirit. Your battles will always be spiritual. And how do we fight these battles? Ephesians chapter 6, 13 through 19, reads like this. How do we fight these battles, church? How do we fight, how do we fight these spiritual battles then? If it's not a physical battle, if my war is not against the man in front of me, then how do I fight the battle because there's still a battle being fought and I need to know how to fight it. I need the tools in order to fight. I need to be able to defend myself. I need to be able to move forward in the kingdom. I need to be able to move forward so that the, the plan of God and the purpose of God would not be thwarted. Not in me. Not because of my negligence. Let me not be negligent. Let me not sit by the wayside in the kingdom of God. Let me not just be a bystander. Let me not just be somebody who receives, 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 and never gives, gives, gives. But how do I do that? How do I do any of this? Ephesians 6 and 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, all of it, the whole thing, 
that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So that you're able to stand in the evil day firmly. Put on the whole armor of God. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the Word of God, Praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. Keep alert. Stand firm. Stand guard. Get in your word. Serve the kingdom in the church. Serve your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Love God above all else. Love one another. Be peaceful with each other. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for people, y'all. Keep doing it over and over and over again. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is how we fight that battle. How do I fight my battle? Ephesians 6. That's how we fight. We fight like Jesus fought. Because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's a battle being waged in the spirit. Take up your armor, church. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for giving us this word, Lord, for teaching us all that you've taught us this morning. For giving that word, Lord, that rich word. That word that divides the church from the world. That word that invigorates our minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Thank you for that life-saving, life-giving word. Thank you for your scripture, Lord. I pray that we put on this armor, that we know who you are, God. Whose son is the Christ? You are the son of the Most High God. And we love you. And we can't do this without you, God nor do we want to. God, help us to love you more. God, help us to love our neighbor more. God, show us how to love, how to really love, Lord. Show us how to really love, Lord. I pray that our love is not born of this world, but, if it's, but that it's born of heaven in the spirit of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.